0: go to Leviticus 23, where the command to do this uh, observance is given us, he says here in Leviticus 23, verse 27, also on the tenth day of this seventh month there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be an holy convocation, so a commanded assembly, and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. So, uh, three things at least there. It is a day of atonement, whatever that means. And it is also a day of fasting, and to offer an offering before God. By fire, they did animal sacrifices then, so an offering made by fire was just that, animal sacrifices. We don't do that anymore, uh, because Christ became the sacrifice that covered all of those various types of animal sacrifices. So it isn't that this is done away with, it's just changed in nature. Now it is his sacrifice that we're concerned with, not animal sacrifices. But there is much to be learned and was for those animal sacrifices. And part of what we're going to cover today, uh, we have to realize was written back here by Moses... And many things were written by the prophets later on about Christ and the various things that would occur in the future. And the statement is made that the former prophets desired to understand and wanted to look into what they were writing and what it meant. Because they knew there had to be some meaning and some some symbolism beyond what they grasped. So they wrote down what God asked them to write, not knowing what a lot of it meant. And God even told Daniel directly, (laughs) forget it, Daniel, seal it up until the end time. Nobody's going to understand this book until the end. A lot of people have tried and uh, have come up with various and sundry odd ideas about the book of Daniel. But only now... When we understand certain things, is it beginning to clear? And it is not entirely clear even yet. So there are many things that are not fully understood. And some of the things about atonement and some of the symbolism for God's holy days, we have come to understand by comparing other scriptures about Christ, about the church, about end times, with what was done back here in Leviticus. And those scriptures then reveal a great deal of the symbolism that is tied up here that Moses himself could not have grasped. So in many respects, you and I understand a lot more than Moses or Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel did. We understand things about their messages they didn't understand. And we'll understand more as time goes on, and have learned a great deal in the last few years, in fact, beyond what we may have understood 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So there's much symbolism back here. You shall do no work in that same day. It is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before the Eternal, your God. We'll study the word atonement here in a little bit, and more what it means But it is there to help our relationship with God. And we know fasting is one of the biggest tools to help us draw near to God. It is used that way throughout the Bible, through the New Testament, where if a truly serious problem arose, in some cases, uh, fasting was one way to get closer to God so that your prayers might have more meaning. In other words, if you are not thinking about the normal things of life during a fast and you are taking away from yourself sustenance, you begin to feel weak, you begin to feel trembly, you begin to feel less strong and less adequate. And that helps put you in an attitude of meekness and humility whereby you might draw nearer to God because it helps remove the ridge of carnality and selfishness and jealousy and envy and all those human things that beset us. And we recognize there is a higher power, a God who provides everything we have, the food we eat, the water we drink, and everything that is. So it is a matter, fasting is primarily a tool to help remove the obstacles between us and God so that we might be closer to him, reconciled with him, whether it be a personal need, fasting in terms of a need for answer for prayer for someone in the congregation, for the removal of very recalcitrant demons, where Christ said these kind only come out by fasting and prayer. So prayer sometimes is sufficient, but sometimes some are stubborn and it requires fasting and prayer. So fasting is a tool. And God has us fast on this day, which, among other things, pictures the marriage of Christ to the church. And you think, well, why would you fast on that day? It's a joyous day when we are able to marry Christ. Well, it is. But are we in any condition to marry him as we sit here today? No. Uh, There are still too many issues that need to be resolved, not with him, but with us, before we can qualify to be his bride. So we fast on this day, and Christ even told people, asking, well, why aren't your disciples fasting? Because the Pharisees, you know, were bragging about fasting twice in the week and all the things that they did that made them so righteous. And he says, my disciples are not fasting because I'm with them. And when I'm not with them, then they will fast. Because he was there and the barriers and the communication problems were not there. They were able to talk and converse freely with him, to be with him, to have meals with him, to walk with him, to be taught by him day in and day out. So fasting was not something they needed to be doing to draw close to a God that they could not see. He says, when I'm gone, then they will fast, because it will be far, far more difficult to maintain close communication, to keep the relationship right and good and close when I'm gone. Now, does that make sense? You bet it does, because we struggle to keep close communication with the Father and the Son and to feel close to them at all times because what happens? Sin, human, carnal attitudes crop up and he tells us in Isaiah 59 that sin comes between us and God. So, and it cuts us off from God. So as long as there is sin on the earth it has the effect of cutting people off from God. And when there is sin in the congregation and sin in our individual lives, even though we may have God's Spirit, and even though we may be seeking to follow God, our human nature, our humanness, gets in our way. And that is... The work of the flesh, the vanity, the jealousy, the envy, the hurt pride, the the hurt feelings, the on and on and on, ad nauseum it goes, of things that you and I have to deal with in our relationships with each other and even with God. Sometimes you can pray to God and you can feel that he's there, he's really listening, that you're getting through, and sometimes it feels like no matter what I say, I don't know what to say, I, I don't seem to be getting through. It's better at times than it is at other times. And then we have to plead, help me draw near you. So, when Christ returns, and we are made immortal on the day of trumpets, the day of atonement follows, which pictures the marriage of the Lamb to his bride. And up until that time, because we are not totally close with him, There are still problems in the relationship because of us and Satan who impacts us. So those issues have to be removed before we can be the bride of Christ. We have to be like him, be as he is. He will not marry a lesser being than is he. Now, he will be in charge, he will be the husband, we will be the wife. So, we do not have or will not have the same status in terms of office that he has, but in terms of being a God being, fully, and like the Father and like the Son, we will be after our glorification and our change. Now that may seem sacrilegious and presumptuous, but that question was even raised in Scripture, and it was clearly stated that it is not a presumptuous or a wrong attitude, I can't remember exactly how it was put at the moment, to say, I will be God or be like God, because we will. That is our destiny, it is our purpose, it is why we were created. So we'll be made like the Son of God. And God clearly says that kind begets kind and marries kind, so Christ is not going to marry a lesser being than he is. Therefore, we must change and come to his level. That's what it's all about. Overcome, grow, and change the best we can, so that we qualify them to be glorified. And the Day of Atonement will change. When we are with Christ, married to Him as His bride, we won't need to fast on the Day of Atonement anymore. It's like those fasts that we read about there in uh, Zechariah 7 and 8. We rehearsed the other day. Those fasts will be turned into feasts of joy, because deliverance will have come in all the categories that those four fasts entail. Destruction of the attacking of the temple, destruction of the temple, destruction of Jerusalem, the killing of the leadership. Those will all be issues that are resolved. And so will the atonement and fasting and getting close to God issue be resolved. So now we fast when he is not here, and we are not married to him. That is why we fast on the tenth day of the seventh month. A commanded assembly to be here, and to fast, and to offer ourselves to Christ uh, as an offering, imperfect though we are, but we are to become perfect. That's the goal and the purpose. Anyway, we need help. And that's where atonement or reconciliation and those things come in. For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted or fast in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. Why cut off? Because fasting, as I explained, is part of the way that we draw close to God. That we remove barriers between us and Him. And if we don't fast, then those barriers are not being removed. And sin cuts us off. It creates barriers. So if we don't fast, we cannot be fully reconciled. Sin cannot be completely excised from our lives. Whatsoever soul it be that does any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. Now, he allows on the other holy days the preparation of food, not your normal work, but the preparation of food. Well, obviously not today, because it is a fast, but no work of any kind. Now, why would that be? Well, this day pictures the marriage of the Lamb. Now, what are you going to be doing? Well, I guess I better go out and plow the back 40 today. No, this day pictures the climax of everything that we have been living and going through to become Christian, to become followers of Christ, the marriage of the Lamb, to be his wife, his companion, forevermore. There is nothing important to consider on this day than that. That's our reason for existing, why we were put here in the first place. And not only that, it then begins the day, or the year, I mean, of the honeymoon of the son and his bride. And Deuteronomy 24 says that during a honeymoon, a man is to take off a year and not work. He's to cheer up his bride for a year. That isn't done in this country. We're busy, 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 and barely making ends meet for the most part, so, you know... Two or three nights in Vegas and that's pretty well it, you come back, or you know, or two weeks in the Caribbean or whatever, I mean, whatever you can afford and want to do. But biblically, the correct answer is take off a year, don't work, have things in order. A man ought to prepare, in other words, for his marriage in such a way that he be able to spend that time with the wife. Why? You're blending two different backgrounds, two different families, two different cultures, sometimes different age groups, sometimes different ethnic backgrounds to one degree or another. So many issues that make a man and a woman different than each other. And they need time to somehow meld and blend. All of those varying approaches into something cohesive that can work together and provide a stable place to have children, to set an example to the rest of society around them of stability, and family, which is what God is building. He created the human family to represent his family to come, and therefore... As many of those issues need to be resolved quickly, if at all possible. And when you put together that much variance in background and ability and education and you name it, there are differences. Even though two people might say we have a lot in common or we like each other or, you know, I love him or I love her, uh, that's not enough. You've got to live together, too. And it takes some figuring out. And when you come from the backgrounds we've come from on this earth and then try to live in constant contact with deity, with Christ, that's a tall order. And there's got to be an awful lot of change somewhere in order for us to get along with him. We have trouble getting along right now, don't we? Yeah, there are all kinds of issues that come up. Why are you angry? Why are you bitter? Why are you mad? Why are you selfish? Why are you greedy? Why are you... All the things that we tend to be. And he is none of those. So, in one sense, we are a burden to him. Still. He explained that pretty clearly in Ezekiel 16, what he divorced Israel he'd done everything he could for her brought her out of sluthood into marriage and cleaned her all up and decorated her up and fixed her up and forgave her and made her beautiful and through his miracles virginal again and then she went right back to the slop that she had been before and he finally divorced her they couldn't get along wasn't his problem it was her. And now we're struggling to qualify to be his bride today and be able to get along and to be able to hold up our end of the deal. And our physical marriages are to portray that. And look at how many difficulties we have in our marriages between a husband and a wife and you may have lived together for not just a year of honeymoon, if you got to do that, and I don't know anybody that has. But 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, you still have little kinks and little twists and little turns and little differences and big differences and, and arguments and fights and various things. Once in a while, somebody tries to tell me, well, we never argue, we always get along, we've never had any problems in our marriage. Yeah, right. I've been around the block more times than that, and I know better. I've seen too many hundreds and thousands of marriages that I've dealt with in years in the ministry, and you're not going to pull that one on me. Yeah, sometimes you go, go along to get along, and there's no telling what you're saying under your breath, but you may not argue. But you don't always agree. And don't ever try to tell me that you have always agreed on everything. Now, maybe you didn't have a cat and dog fight, but that didn't mean you agreed on everything, because you didn't. No two human beings ever have, or ever will, as long as we're human. Sorry to bust your bubble if you still got real dark red rose-colored glasses on. I, I don't think anybody here does. I, I think we're all more realistic than that. But still in all, our communication with God is not perfect and with our prospective bridegroom is not perfect. And I would not want to walk down the aisle today with him at the other end and me being me. That would be really scary business. Here's perfection at that end and here I come. Uh, we, we we got problems already. Before, we, before the music even starts, we got problems, and those have got to be fixed. That's what this day really is about. Uh, that's all that's there in terms of meaning. I want to go back to Leviticus 16 now, because this chapter gives us the dynamics of what this day is talking about and and identifies the players and where they fit in the scheme of things and how the issues will be resolved. Now, Aaron was the high priest and before approaching the Day of Atonement, he had to do all kinds of cleansings and put on his holy garments and so on because as the physical high priest... He was a type of Christ who was to come and be the overriding high priest overall. And even though Christ came and lived that and came and went to his Father in heaven and became our high priest in the heavens, still in all, uh, after that, they had high priests, or later the name was used, apostle, uh, to represent Christ and to represent the Father on the earth in an organizational fashion. But they themselves have to be cleansed as well and pray and ask for repentance and forgiveness and so on. So after he had done his cleansing so that he could represent holiness, uh, verse 5 he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering. And one ram for a burnt offering. So here are two goats that were to be selected for a sin offering. Now, a sin offering was always killed. We will find in this chapter that both of these goats were not killed. Now, they could have been an offering for sin... Had everything been right, they both could have been killed, and sin would have gone away. But that's not the way the story comes out. Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. So he had to be cleansed before he could even do this. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the eternal at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So he takes both goats and presents them before God. Okay? And he'll cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the eternal and the other lot for the azazel, is better translated in Hebrew, not scapegoat, but azazel. Now notice one is clearly for the Lord. This one clearly is something for God. Something important that has to do with God. The other is an Azazel, which puts it in a different category. It's still brought before God. Now bear in mind, all human beings will face judgment in one way or another before God. Some will inherit eternal life at that judgment. Some will go into a lake of fire at that judgment. But all are brought before the eternal, for good or for bad, for better or for worse, because a judgment has to be made. And that is a story that will develop here. That one is to be presented alive, before the eternal, to make an atonement with him, to let him go for an Azazel into the wilderness. Now, if this one is to expiate sin in any way, then it has to die, right? Because blood is required for sin. If we did not have Christ's sacrifice for us, we would die for our own sins. Since we do... Our sin can be covered in his blood. And we do not have to pay that penalty because he paid it for us. But now this one goat was not to be killed, it was to be turned into the wilderness. We will see that this one represents Satan. Now, there are people over the years who have... Uh, conjectured that both actually represented Christ and I want to uh, dispel that idea uh, here today because the major players mentioned in other places in the Bible indicate that it does not represent Christ this is (coughs) Azel. now we can go to the Hebrew Uh, atonement means cover or cover with pitch it was used I think the first time in terms of uh, Noah covering the ark with pitch. To cover it over. Uh, Why? So water couldn't get in. Uh, Pitch is uh, not solvent in water. So to cover it so that it could not destroy or sink the ark. So it was there as a covering. Now, Christ's blood is there to cover us. So the goat for the Lord is there uh, since his blood covers us and expiates or removes our sin. It is the covering for us. Now, this one also was to have an atonement as well. A covering. As we go on, we'll find out what that covering entailed. And it was not the blood of Christ. It's a different type of covering that was given to this Azazel. I have here uh, some a little bit of Hebrew. We won't go too much into that. I know you go to sleep when we get too technical, and especially when you're fasting, it's even harder to concentrate. But uh, azaz means to prevail, strengthen, be, stra- be stout. And azal, A-Z-A-L, is a primitive root, which means to disappear, be gone, spent. Now in Hebrew, as with English, you might have a word in the Hebrew that is used and translated 20 different ways in English. So if you look a word up in Hebrew, you'll find that this is the word, but here's a list of the ways or the words that are used for it to be translated into an in English And there can be many, many, many different ways a word is used. Just like in English, a word can mean many, many different things. We're fasting today. That means we're not eating. It also means rapid, doesn't it? Fast. It can mean many different things. And most English words are like that. They have all kinds of different uses and meanings, and that's where a lot of comedians have a heyday, is because you can be thinking, they're thinking this word means this, and then they'll reverse directions, and that word suddenly meant something different. Hence the humor. And Hebrew is the same way, and Greek. We have to be very, very careful in using these languages then we go back to the meanings and all the different synonyms that they have. A much more important tool in understanding is context. Always has been, always will be. Just like in English, the context determines how the word is used. If I say, I am really hungry and thirsty today... The context there, when I say I'm fasting, means I'm going without food and water. Now, if I say that car is fast, the context determines that fast there is talking about the speed of an automobile not doing without food. So, one of the most important, if not the most important, Aspect of Bible study is context. You can even have a truly mistranslated word, and the context will tell you that that's not the word that was intended. Like the old King James word for conduct, and the New Testament is often translated conversation. And the context itself will tell you we're not talking about a conversation and talk here, we're talking about activity and conduct. So even without knowing it's a 1611 word, you can see that conversation doesn't fit. So the context tells you whether it's talking about a conversation or about conduct or whatever. So the same thing is true here. Uh, Actually, if you get right down to the roots of Azazel, it means... To be strong, or to prevail, or strengthen, to disappear, be gone, or spent. In other words, strong to be gone, let me put it that way. Uh, We find that this Azazel, this goat, was sent out into the wilderness alone a little later on. And we find Satan as one, in second Peter two four, and in Jude six and thirteen, and in Revelation twenty, as a being who has reserved for him darkness forever and chains forever, and to be sent into a wilderness where he cannot influence other beings, people at first, bound a thousand years, by someone fit or strong enough, powerful enough, qualified enough to take Satan by the nape of the neck and bind him for a thousand years. So he has to have someone stronger than he is. Strong to be gone. Strong enough to put him away. Now that's what the New Testament will tell you this is talking about. Satan has to be gone. Now, remember, you and I have two sutors. Two who have their hat in the ring for us, if you will. God created Adam and Eve through Christ. They were in the garden. And ultimately... There was a plan to have a family with Christ to be the husband and us to be the wife. But somebody else decided to come and steal the girl away. Satan the devil. And he has been around trying to steal her away ever since, has he not? And he still, the closer we get to God, the angrier he gets... He still wants us to take, wants to take us away. Now, his intentions are not entirely honorable, and in fact, not at all honorable. He wants us to steal us, he wants to steal us away and kill us, murder us, spiritually, eternally, and forever. That's his goal and purpose. He's still on the scene. He has to be removed. Now, Feast of Trumpets pictures the glorification of the bride of Christ, the first fruits, 144,000. That's all, just 144,000 in the first fruits, the bride of Christ, the first resurrection. And atonement is that day that pictures the putting away of Satan when the bride's last Sutor, or the one who's trying to steal her away, will be put away. So that then there will be a thousand years, followed by the Feast of Tabernacles five days from now, where Satan is bound and cannot influence people. So this day pictures the putting away of Satan because you cannot have full atonement or full reconciliation with him around. As long as he's still around pestering us, we cannot have full reconciliation, conciliation, I am fasting today, uh, with Christ and with the Father. We can't. Because he leads us into sin, he leads us into wrong thoughts, he leads us into difficulties. Now, it didn't work the first time around. Christ married Israel, and she departed, as I said. So the holy days picture a plan to resolve the issues and to have total communication and perfection in one marriage forevermore. Passover represents Christ dying for us and having his body, I mean his blood poured out on the ground, that our sin might be covered And then we have six days beyond that, after that first day, the day of man, to continue to put the sin of man away from us. We cannot do it on our own, so that Sabbath during those days of unleavened bread is tied to another holy day, Pentecost. And Christ told the disciples (coughs) that he would send a comforter to strengthen them, to help them, to comfort them because they couldn't obey him without his Spirit. So that's what Pentecost ultimately represents, the Spirit being given to the firstfruits to help repair them as the bride of Christ. Then comes the long, hot summer. The time where we, from the time we're given his Spirit, after we repent and are baptized, and receive that Spirit through the laying on of hands, We have a period of time as humans where we cannot obey perfectly. We're still human. We try, we work at it, we pray, we read the Bible, we meditate, we think on it, we correct ourselves, we hate ourselves for the sin that abides within us. Our conscience bothered us, bothers us when we think wrong or we find ourselves being jealous or petty or envious or mean or angry or, you know, all these things. But they're there, and we have to struggle with them every day. And even with the help of the Holy Spirit, we cannot be just like the Father and the Son as human beings because of our very humanness because of the stubbornness and the contrariness of our nature. So it's a struggle against our very nature, day in and day out. But that has to be completely resolved before we can become the bride. He says, if you overcome, if you grow, you change, I'll grant you to sit with me in my throne, but there has to be a total and final reconciliation. And let's get into that a little more here. Let's see, he'll send us from into the wilderness. Uh, let me quote you a, a verse back in Isaiah 14, uh, verse 17, it is. We flip over there for a moment. Now, this is speaking of Satan and his fall from what he had been as a carob that covered and what he is now, and how God is going to completely destroy his reputation and make him of none effect. Hated and despised and disrespected. And he says in verse 17, speaking of Satan, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners. So Satan's desire has been to turn the earth into a wilderness. No human beings. He almost accomplished it once, when sin and violence became so great that no one thought godly at all, and he came within one man, within a whisker, of making the earth a wilderness. But God had Noah build an ark and saved eight souls total to begin again, so the plan would not fail. But Satan in 1,600 years approximately had come to the place that millions, perhaps billions of people were so sold in sin that it wasn't worth saving. And save Noah, he would have made the world a wilderness and that would have been the end of the deal. You and I are here as a result of God, through Noah, saving human life. Satan is in the middle of another plan right now, same plan but different approach to get us so sin sick so miserable, so violent so nasty that we would have to be destroyed again and he has convinced human leaders on this earth that the population needs to be reduced by 90% or more and in his mind All. 100%. And he's bringing it about very quickly now, and God is allowing it because God also knows that in order for this sin-sick world to be saved, just as in Noah's day, almost everyone has to die and come up in a different world without Satan around in order to be saved from what man is and from what Satan is. So... (coughs) After growing and overcoming through that summer, we have the Feast of Trumpets, where it says we will be resurrected on that day and glorified and made perfect, that our nature will go away and we'll have the nature of God. Now, that is a monster step forward toward preparing to be the bride of Christ. He only will marry his own kind and we, simply as we are today, are not anywhere near. But that glorification will change things. We'll be the same kind. But that doesn't give us the full reconciliation that comes then with the Day of Atonement. This goat is sent into the wilderness, and we'll we'll read a little bit more. Let's go on down and we'll get back to that be sent into the wilderness verse 11 and then Aaron brings the bullock and does the sin offering for his family and so on Uh, I don't want to read all of that Uh, verse 15 then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat So the first goat, the one that was for the Lord, is to be killed, and its blood was to be taken in before the Father and the Holy of Holies for the people. Now the Bible later explains that very clearly, and we know the story, how Christ had to be perfect, had to be killed, his blood had to be spilled, And then it had to be offered before the Father and him accepted before he could be touched again for the people. He didn't have to die for his sins, he died for yours and mine. So, this occurs with that first goat. And there shall be no man, verse 17, in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goes in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. So this goat is offered, and it is done under absolute holy circumstances, no imperfection, no sin, and the blood of Christ is greater than all our blood combined. And therefore we can live. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the eternal and make an atonement for it. And shall take the blood of the billet and spread it around the horns of the altar and so on. And sprinkle the blood on his finger seven times. And cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Seven denotes perfection. This has to be complete and perfect expiation of sin. No sin left. Entirely holy. Entirely clean. Perfect. Seven times. That's how God purifies His Word. It's how He purifies us. And He wanted it done perfectly. No shadow of sin. No sin left. That's the way we have to be when we marry Christ, absolutely sinless and perfect seven times over. He will have a perfect bride. And that is right here in the context of the Day of Atonement. Verse 20, And when he has made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat, now, at this point, let's understand what's happened here. He's taken the one goat that was set aside for the Lord. He has killed it. He has spilled its blood. He has taken it in before the Holy of Holies. He has come out. He has washed and sprinkled it seven times so that no sin is there. Total holiness. Okay? Total holiness. That represents the quality of his sacrifice, and I submit to you, it also recognizes our future state. We will be utterly and totally reconciled and holy when we marry the Lamb. Now, we have something else to deal with here. What else is there to deal with with our sins and anything that represents a sacrifice for us? Nothing. It's done. Seven times over. Done. Our sin is gone. Pure, clean, white, virgin. Now we're dealing with something else. It doesn't represent Christ. Verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. He is not killed. Sin to be expiated requires blood death this one is not killed and yet he has the sins of Israel confessed over his head now how can we have a situation where all sin has been completely cleansed through this one goat Christ and still have sin to be reckoned with Satan you see Christ's sacrifice is there and Passover is there to provide an opportunity for forgiveness of sin for those who will repent but it continues until the trumpets then atonement is the final covering the final total reconciliation so that oneness at one meant can be achieved But it can't be as long as you have someone else who wants the bride around and would try to influence her. That has to be dealt with. Now, I'm going to page back, keep your finger here, to Genesis 3 and this story. I won't go through the whole thing for sake of time, but remembering (coughs) that Satan approached Eve and Adam... As what? A serpent? Oh, no. He approached them as a light-bringer. He approached them as one who would illumine things and make them have better understanding and knowledge so that they would know the difference between right and wrong and they would be better educated and have a Ph.D. in understanding and knowledge. He presented himself as an angel of light as the light bringer. He wasn't anymore. He had lost that. But what was he? He was a liar, a deceiver, a murderer. But that's not the way he appeared. And he deceived them, lied to them. When it was said and done, where did God place the blame? God made a judgment on what had happened there. First of all, He told the man, or no, He told Eve, since she was the first one involved with Satan there, that uh, there would be. Well, let's read it. They blamed it on each other and on the devil, and then on down here. God says in verse fifteen of chapter three, "I will put enmity between you and the woman." And between your seed and her seed, it shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So from that time on, Satan would be an arch enemy. It is natural when you see a poisonous snake to want to destroy it. When, when I was growing up, and I would be around a rattlesnake or a cottonmouth or some of those that were around, My first reaction was, that thing needs to die before it bites me. And God put that enmity there between a physical snake and mankind. Most of us don't have pet snakes. There are a few odd people here and there who do. But most of us prefer warm and fuzzy to cold, clammy, and and scaly. We don't prefer snakes as as companions for the most part. It, it isn't natural. It's unnatural. They're cold-blooded. They're, uh, in some cases, venomous. And even the ones that aren't uh, are generally distasteful to most people. So God put an enmity there, but he's speaking of Satan, really, not of physical snakes. He just used physical snakes as an example of the loathing that poisonous, angry Snakes can do to kill us, and Satan is that—a raging lion or serpent going about seeking whom he may devour. So, what did God do? Isaiah fourteen, Ezekiel twenty-eight say that he would be made of no reputation; all his reputation would be destroyed, as having been a carried, covered, having been a leader of a third of the righteous angels all gone, and now in the eyes of man he would also become degraded, worthless, and of no reputation. He's tried to deceive people since, but he's not that. But if you got any sense at all, you know that he is. So he says, first of all, you're going to be enemies with mankind. Then he tells the woman that she will have a... uh, a punishment that you'll have trouble with childbearing and child rearing and so on, and Adam that he would have to work hard by the sweat of his brow. Things wouldn't grow naturally and normally and easily anymore, but he would have to work hard to make a living. So he punished man and woman, and he completely destroyed any relationship that there might or should be between man and Satan. And he also uh, punished Satan by destroying his credibility and his uh, reputation as a light bringer, or whatever, which he said he would do. Now, Satan has been trying to make the earth a wilderness ever since. Now, let's go back to Leviticus 16. We'll see that God assessed a certain amount of blame on Adam and Eve, but the greatest blame is on Satan. So, on this live goat, this is Azel that needs to be strongly sent away, put out, put in a wilderness by a fit man. And the same word is used in Revelation 20: fit man in English. Out into the wilderness. Uh, you know what goes around comes around. The things you fear may come upon you. Satan tried to make the world a wilderness, and God is going to send him into the wilderness. Now, he represents a third of the angels who will also be put in chains and reserved for the mist of darkness forever, as 2 Peter and, and Jude tell us. Now, what kind of an existence is that going to be? He will not be able to go before the throne of God, which will be here. He will not be able to affect people he will be cast into a dungeon or a wilderness, away from everything, forevermore, and tormented forever. Not by fire, because he's a spirit being, but the judgment there in Revelation is 20, 20 is that he will be tormented forever and ever. What torment? The torment of having to live with himself and those demons forevermore. And what are they filled with? Anger, bitterness, hate, envy, jealousy. All those things that he has imparted to human beings and affected us into being. He's going to have to live with that kind of misery and frustration forever. God blames him in great part for your sins and mine. Adam and Eve had not sinned and had no inclination, in, still can't talk, uh, indication of, or inclination, I'm trying to say, until Satan showed up. So what happens? Our sins, the blame for them, is put on Him. Christ forgives the sin. His blood covers it, wipes all sin out, and makes us perfect and clean before him. But the blame for that sin, the most of it, falls on Satan the devil. So that is what is pronounced upon him. Lay both hands on him and tell him, You are the one who started this whole thing in that garden, and you have the blame and the culpability for it, You're responsible, and I'm going to send you into the wilderness, and there you will live with the misery of all the sin and degradation and division and disunity and disharmony and fights and squabbles and problems that human beings have had ever since. It's on you, Buster. That's what this means. Sit out. Sit away. Strongly. Strongly. By a strong man, a fit man. That fits the context of what the Hebrew says. He was brought before God, right? He was offered an atonement, right? He rejected it, right? He will not repent, right? He cannot be reconciled then. Therefore, the blame is laid on him and he is sent away. Just as I said earlier, those who are the bride of Christ are going to be judged holy and righteous through the blood of Christ. And others will be brought before the judgment seat and sent to the left, not the right, into a lake of fire. Not very many, but some. So they both come before the Lord. That doesn't make them righteous. Coming before the Lord is a matter of judgment. We can come before the Lord under the blood of Christ and be judged righteous because of his forgiveness and his blood. Others can come and they can't be forgiven because they still carry the blame and the guilt for their own sins not having repented. Now the blame for that sin lies greatly upon Satan the devil. So he sent him to the wilderness, and the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. And he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. Wilderness can mean totally uninhabited. It can mean other things in Hebrew, but that's the primary meaning. Now, when was it ever said of Christ that he would be cut off or separate from? Never. Never. We are promised in several scriptures that we will be with Him. Always be with Him once we become the bride of Christ. Never separated from Him. He even says uh, in Romans, what I wrote it down here somewhere, well, that we can never be separated by anything. And that He will never leave us nor forsake us in Hebrews he'll always be with us so he is not going to be sent into the wilderness there is never any place in the Bible Christ is sent into the wilderness where he is alone now he died for three days and was resurrected but he wasn't in the wilderness alone in fact he just wasn't, he was dead he knew nothing And immediately upon rising, he went to the Father in heaven. His blood was accepted. His sacrifice and his integrity and his perfection was accepted. And he came back immediately to the people. Now you can touch me. Do you doubt? Here my scars. You can touch me now. And I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm going up to my Father's throne, preparing a place for you. But I'll be with you through all that goes on, and I will come back to you, and I will glorify you, and we will ever be together. This Azazel cannot represent, in any symbol symbology anywhere in the Bible, Christ. Can be done. Because Christ is ever with his people. Never leaves, never forsakes. Will always be there. This is one sent into the wilderness. And that is said of Satan. I'll send you, I'll chain you, I'll bind you. You will not affect people. You're going to be turned loose for a short while at the end of the thousand years, Revelation 20. And then you will be rebound and thrown where the beast and false prophet were and be tormented forever by your own lack of character, by your own bestiality. By your own unrighteousness. Now there we get to why this day is so important. Because it represents the total cleansing of the blood of Christ. We're glorified. And then that being which stands between us and a good relationship with the one we are now engaged to. Will be taken away. By a fit, strong, purposeful man, which may be Christ himself, one of the archangels could not do it. Remember the the situation in Daniel where they couldn't get through until two of them ganged up on Satan. Christ is the one who defeated him when he was tempted. And where does it say Satan goes, or the demons go, when they're cast out of people into a dry Area. Barren, dry, no good areas of the earth. They're frustrated, they're miserable, they're lonely, they're awful. So this day pictures the putting away of Satan so that he can no longer ever affect the bride of Christ. So we fast to get close to God which is what fasting is for, we marry Christ and our enemy is taken away, never to bother us again. This day is an incredibly powerful day in terms of the meaning that is there. You might not get it. Aaron probably didn't get it when he was doing it. Didn't understand what all this meant. But now with the New Testament and the history... We can understand what this is all about. Then, when the bride, in a perfect marriage, perfect reconciliation, can go about establishing a family, the children that are left, or the people that are left, after the seven last plagues, and go out and help them and straighten them out and guide them and lead them into having happy wonderful lives without Satan around to influence them and then when he's turned loose for a short season he immediately destroys or or deceives multitudes Revelation 20 says of people just like that that's how powerful he is but it lasts only a short while and he's rebound and gone forever but during that time he won't affect us we will have been glorified, will be the bride of Christ. He'll only affect those human beings who are still left, and very powerfully. So that shows what he is. This is Azel, represents Satan, who is mostly to blame for your sins and mine. And he will be sent away forevermore. Thank God and we will be the bride of Christ living in happiness with no je- with no pain, no sorrow, no fears, no jealousy, no envy, no hate, no bitterness, total unity forevermore. This is a wonderful day even though you're not eating.